Here at Illinois Rights Life Action, we are really excited to share that we've been invited to be a part of SLS this December 30th through January 3rd in Phoenix, Arizona. SLS is a conference presented by Focus that brings together real-world models of missionary discipleship. Speakers will share the hope, encouragement, and direction we need to seize the moment and live out Christ's truth with conviction. Life Chat Podcast will actually be broadcasting live from SLS in Phoenix, and we want you to join us there. Register at sls20.org or by clicking the link in the show notes. See you there. You're listening to the Life Chat Podcast, a project of Illinois Right to Life Action. Hey, pro-lifers. My name is Mary-Kate Knorr. I'm the executive director of Illinois Right to Life and the host of this podcast. I want to give sort of a brief intro into the conversation that you're about to hear. And I want to preface it with birth control is a tough issue. This is a very difficult issue. There are a lot of pro-life people out there who don't believe that birth control is a part of that conversation. And I hope that anyone who's listening to this and has a predisposed opinion about the birth control issue will really listen openly to Dr. Lawler's message and will really take a critical look at what it is we're trying to talk about here. I think this is very important. I think that as a pro-life movement, we haven't fully recognized the way that the abortion industry uses birth control as a tool, as sort of a lead creator in a lot of instances for their purposes. 16% of teenagers who go on some form of hormonal birth control, specifically the pill, uh, they typically find themselves pregnant within the first year that they're taking that medication. So that's about 16% of those teenagers. So I think that's a key a key fact for us to remember going into this conversation. In light of that, um, thank you so much for listening. I'm really excited to share this particular conversation with you. I think it's a good one. Thanks. I'm here with Dr. Robert Lawler. He's an OBGYN in the Chicago area. And Dr. Lawler is known for, uh, I think, a lot of reasons, um, not just in the state, here in the state, but nationally. Um, not at the bottom of that list is that he's a father of 11. Um, his daughter, Mary Kate's here with us. She's also a NICU nurse. So I told her she's welcome to jump in at any point if there's something uh, that she wants to add. But we want to talk about, I think, a couple things today, really primarily sort of the crux of the pill and this relationship with women's health that we find uh, it has and how that all kind of ties in with the abortion issue and also with the pro-life movement. So Dr. Lawler, do you want to go ahead and just kind of give a brief intro to yourself? You know, how did, um, I think uh, a good way to begin is what really sets you apart from other OBGYNs, uh, particularly on this issue? Sure. Well, I've been practicing obstetrics and gynecology for the last 25 years here in Donners Grove. And um, our practice is unique in that we follow the ethical and religious directives of the Roman Catholic faith. Um, That journey to make that decision was not uh, always the case. Um, It was a, a journey that I grew in my faith, learned more about my Roman Catholic faith and decided to align my practice with those values. And so what sets this practice apart is that um, 
First and foremost, what's unique about an obstetrician gynecologist practice like ours is that we don't prescribe contraception, we don't of course refer for abortion, and we don't refer for um, in vitro fertilization. Other than that, Mary-Kate, we are a standard uh, practice providing what we feel is state-of-the-art obstetrics and gynecology. Uh, care for our women in um, the surrounding community. Um, so, and like I said, how we got to that point is a story unto itself, but we just feel that the mingling of medicine and faith, not, we don't see that as a, uh, a deterrent, we actually see that as um, a bolstering the care of the patient, the entire patient. Right. And I think that uh, when you come to Donner's Grove OBGYN and you walk in the door, you are immediately struck by uh, this feeling, Other, I can't describe it any other way other than a, a feeling of uh, a grace that um, permeates from the staff um, and all who come here feel like they're in a safe place and they're getting um, excellent medical care. Yeah. So my understanding, you know, I, obviously I know a lot of people who come to your practice and I think there's a lot of people specifically who seek it out because women, gosh, from the age of 14 up, I think are inundated by this idea that the pill will clear up their acne and regulate their period and provide all of this quote unquote care that they've been told they need in order to function like a healthy, happy human being. And that is not your philosophy at all. Um, and so I'm curious if you could give sort of an explanation from your perspective of what is the pill actually doing when we see this? Um, and how do we, how do we, I guess, communicate that in a way that women can realize it's not, an, it's not something they need. It's not actually healing whatever issues they might be having. It's, in a certain sense, I think maybe putting a Band-Aid on the problem that's actually doing more harm than good. True enough. Um, yeah, when it comes to combined hormonal contraception or the pill, um, there's, there, it's problematic in many ways. First of all, when we think about prescribing medications. Most medications in the United States that I can think of are prescribed to treat a certain disease process, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, thyroid issues. But when you think about the birth control pill, what is it main goal of treating? And what, what is the disease process? Well, the disease process ironically, is a normal healthy state, that is a woman's fertility. We're looking at her fertility as, um, as something that is aberrant uh, and not normal, and we know that that's not the case. A woman's normal fertility is a healthy state. So to prescribe a potent medication to thwart that healthy state is problematic to begin with. So. But back to your basic question, you know, what exactly is the pill and why are 12 million women in the United States taking it on a daily basis? The pill is typically a combination of synthetic hormones, both estrogen and progestins. 
And the idea of, in very simplistic terms is the pill is taken on a daily basis, typically three weeks out of the month, in an attempt to override the natural system by creating what in essence is a state of pseudo-pregnancy. It's, it's in essence tricking your body into thinking that uh, you're already pregnant and when you're already pregnant you don't ovulate. So you take these combined hormones, estrogen, progestin, and these synthetic hormones are nothing like the um, hormones that are naturally produced by your ovaries. They're foreign to your body and they're extremely potent. The mechanisms of action of the birth control pill are, are really threefold. The, the first one is, like I stated, it, we try to override, create a state of pseudo-pregnancy, hopefully keep that woman from releasing an egg, from ovulating. That's a contraceptive effect. The second effect is that it changes a woman's cervical mucus. We know that cervical mucus is incredibly important for fertility. And when a woman is fertile, her mucus is very abundant and it's very clear and stretchy and it facilitates um, conceiving. The birth control pill changes that. It changes the mucus to a very thick, viscous mucus that impairs the function of healthy mucus. It impairs sperm transport. There again, a contraceptive uh, mechanism of action. And then the third mechanism of action is the one that, for me, is most problematic because the birth control pill, which is taken day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, it actually starts to shrink the lining of the uterus, the endometrium. That's where, when a baby is created, it think of it as the blanket that the baby is snuggled into. And we want a nice, fluffy endometrium for that baby to snuggle into. What the birth control pill does is it shrinks that, it atrophies it. And when it's shrunken down and atrophied, that impairs that new baby from implanting. So it impairs implantation of a newly created life. And then that baby is flushed out of the uterus. Now that mechanism of action is not a contraceptive, but an abortifacient. You're aborting this new created life. And I don't think a lot of women are aware that that mechanism of action is taking place when they're taking the birth control pill. And there again, it, how often is it taking place? Very difficult to say. But you can imagine if there's 12 to 18 million women, depending on where you read, in the United States alone on the birth control pill, even a small percentage of 12 million is, a, is quite a number of, uh, of potential abortions that are taking place.
The other thing about the birth control pill is we've always been told, well, it's temporary. You go on it and you come off it and everything is just the same as when you were off it and now that went once you've discontinued the use. And what we're seeing is that that very well may not be true. That some of the effects, especially on the mucus production of the cervix and on a substance known as sex hormone binding globulin may be more permanent and may never return to the normal state, which is should be disconcerting to most. So what would that mean for you know, any woman, period. I mean, someone who's trying to get pregnant, someone who's trying to sustain a pregnancy, someone who's, you know, I mean, entering into menopause. What would some of those things mean for her? Right. So, so in, in the woman who is trying to get pregnant, if we have caused permanent alteration to her mucus production from her cervix, that's going to make it more difficult for her to conceive in the future. And that may not return to a normal status after she's been on the pill for a given period of time. When you think about the pill and you think about, well, what about Dr. Lawler, those situations, uh, painful periods or bad acne, um, ovarian cyst. What about those? Is, is the pill really treating those? And the answer is no. Because a woman who has bad, painful periods, heavy periods, and she goes on the pill and they get better, have you really addressed the underlying problem of why she was having painful periods? Right. Does she potentially have an infection? Does she potentially have endometriosis? Right. No, she may very well have them. And when she goes off that pill, one, two, ten years later, is she still going to have endometriosis? Of course she is. So in many ways, I think, you know, the analogy is that if, if the only tool you have in your toolbox is a hammer, mm -hmm then every problem that you deal with looks like a nail because that's all you've got. And you asked earlier, well, what sets this practice apart? It's that we want to go deeper. We want to figure out what the problem is mm -hmm. and not override it, mm -hmm. not put a Band-Aid over it, but try to really figure it out, fix it, and, and go on. And, and a lot of times, if that means diagnosing a woman with endometriosis earlier, dealing with it earlier, but then also informing the patient that, hey, you've got a chronic condition and you would be better served starting your family sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that is, you know, what's taking place is that we're delaying our families for other reasons right. and time is not the friend 
for a woman's fertility. This is, this is one of the things that I think is most interesting about this conversation is that you have Planned Parenthood who says, we're all about women's health care. We are a women's health care provider. We're a family planning clinic, which is maybe the most ironic phrase in the history of the world. And, you know, they say all these things. And that's really, I think, the the, the you know calling card of the pro-choice movement is, well, we are about women's health care. But what you're really saying, I mean, talk to any, I, I think it's pretty safe to say, talk to any pro-choice doctor who is looking at a woman who's having some sort of issue, I, I don't know whether it's, it, it's somehow hormonal, he'd probably say, well, go on the pill. And that's not actually caring for that woman in the slightest. I, really, you know, I think, it, you know, it's exactly what you're saying. Um, and th that's the thing that's most interesting to me is what you're essentially uh, suggesting is there's deeper questions to be asked and there are also answers to those questions that are there and exist and provide real options to women that uh, are not available when you're just stuff you know just stuffing your body with artificial hormones that change what's natural about you absolutely and I think that you know one of the largest segments of our clinical practice that is growing um, are women who are coming to us with no religious affiliation whatsoever and I would classify them Mary Kate as green organic uh, women who um, are very health conscious and they're eating right and they're working out and then one patient of mine beautifully said and then Dr. Lawler the light went off the light went on in my head and I thought to myself boy I'm taking care of myself internally I'm I'm exercising I'm eating right but every day I'm consuming a synthetic steroid and mm -hmm. there has to be a better way and of course there is there's a better and healthier way right and that's fertility awareness natural family planning charting things like that things tools that help empower women to manage their fertility manage their uh, reproductive health in a very responsible way right and it acts as a it's it's another vital sign if you will it's another tool to help women help their physicians their nurses make the appropriate diagnosis mm -hmm. what do you think the relationship is between this all of this and the larger abortion problem that we have so i think basically what what you're saying is that there are women who are probably aborting and they don't even know it. Um, if they're on the pill and they are sexually active and they do conceive, you know, there's potential there that a woman might have a series of abortions over a period of years and have no idea. How does that, how does all of this sort of connect to the, the larger abortion question or the larger abortion problem from our perspective? Great question. I think that Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, I believe the Supreme Court Justice really summed it up quite well um, in one case where she said that in, in a society um, that has embraced contraception has become to 
depend on contraception as a way of family planning, if you will, that you by default have to have a backup plan if the contraception fails. Mm -hmm. And that backup plan is abortion. Right. So there it is. They are intimately interwoven. They go hand in hand. We know that the pill can certainly act as an abortifacient, can cause the loss of an early baby. And that ties quite nicely, if you will, into the abortion industry. You brought up Planned Parenthood. You know, the number one abortion provider in the United States. Abortion is not health care. It's certainly not good for the baby in the womb. I think everyone would agree that. That's true. And it's equally harmful to the woman who's been, I believe, in so many ways coerced into yeah. having an abortion. Can we, can we talk about that for a second? I'm curious. Um, you know, and certainly, I mean, in the interest of protecting, you know, your, uh, your patients and that, but I'm curious what your experience has been um, with women who maybe are post-abortive or that they're kind of coming to this realization. Um, I'm curious if you've had that experience with anyone and... Oh, yes. And, and you know, it, it's, a, it's a privilege to take care of those special women. They are uh, wounded, they are uh, hurting. A a very common uh, phrase that many of them will use with me is, Dr. Lawler, if I could just push the reset button, if I could just go talk to that young girl on the table there and pull her off, because I was, I was sold a bill of goods. I was told a lie. I was told that it'll all be all right and that you'll get over it and that you'll get on with your life. And unfortunately, that's not the case. Do you go on? Yes, you go on, but you go on and the wounds are deep, the scars are there. And I can't tell you how many patients of mine, post-abortive women, who can tell you how old their aborted baby would be now, or that their aborted baby would be graduating from college, and will they ever be able to face that baby in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really uh, quite sad. And these women need our our care. Um, And we need to get to them before they make that decision. Mm -hmm. Because we all know that it's it's not enough just to tell a woman, don't have an abortion. Right. We need to support that woman because many times she's being coerced into having an abortion. She is scared. She's being threatened with financial ruin or shame. And she really needs 
multifaceted support, mm -hmm. and that's what we need to provide them. Um, and there are some wonderful crisis pregnancy centers throughout the country who are doing just exactly that. Yeah. We were talking about that a little bit before, um, before we started recording the threat to pregnancy centers right now and also the threat to conscience protection. And I had sort of posed you with a question that, you know, what, it, what do you perceive the biggest threat to our culture to be as a pro-life doctor? And that was one of the things that you kind of shared. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that conscience protection and how that's kind of threatened right now um, in Illinois and I think also in a lot of other places too. Sure, throughout And the why that's so detrimental to women's health in general. Um, all over across the country. Absolutely. I, I think that it, it is sort of that area of medicine right now, Mary-Kate, that, that worries me the most is that there are laws currently on the book that want to limit um, a physician's right um, to um, their uh, religiously held beliefs as it regards the the unborn life in the womb and um, laws that want to supersede um, a person's conscientious refu refusal to harm the baby in the womb or go against what they truly believe to be uh, the right thing to do for the patient they're taking care of. And um, this kind of legal shenanigans, if you will, should make us all pause and it should send a chill down our spine that says, oh my goodness, if the state can mandate that a physician goes against his medical training, his religiously held beliefs, and do something that he knows is harmful to his patient, that just cannot stand. That, that cannot happen. We're a far better country than that. Yeah. And that's what makes me, um, I guess keeps me up at night. Yeah. Well, in in that vein, the religious portion, the religious piece of this, I talk about this a lot. It's very important to me. I feel like really at the core of, you know, there are a lot of secular and atheist pro-life movements out there right now, which is a really funny thing to me. But I am of the belief that well, really what gives us our purpose is this idea that God assigned a purpose to human life. And why would we be fighting about the science anyway if there weren't some greater reason or you know inherent uh, purpose that's designated for human life and not for other things? Um, so I'm curious to hear your take on that, but also that doesn't mean the science isn't there. The science is there. And I think you as a doctor could attest to the fact that we do know when life begins. We do know that that's a baby, even if it hasn't quite yet started to look quite like the way we see most babies. Um, so I'm curious what your thoughts are about all that. 
Yes, it's quite interesting that uh, with all the hot topic issues in, in the country right now, and when we talk about climate change and other issues where science seems to trump uh, every other opinion, except science when it comes to life is sort of put to the side. But it is settled science. It's embryology 101. Everybody in medical school uh, or biology class knows that when egg and sperm unite, that a new, unique human life, un identical to not the mother or the father, but unique to itself with components of both. And yes, it's a human being. Yes, it's a person. And yes, it demands the rights and dignities of all persons. So that is settled science. Now we can choose to ignore that. And we can choose to ignore it because it's microscopic and we don't, um, we, we can't see it with our naked eye, but we all pass through those various stages of being a human being. And um, we need to um, protect that new life, you know, at all cost. Yeah. At all cost. So, You know, while we talk about all of this a lot, I think that there's um, there's a lot to all of it. There's a lot to the pill aspect. There's a lot to the abortion aspect. I think a key hole, maybe, that has allowed the abortion industry to grow the way that it has has really been lack of education for women. And I'm, you know, what what's your take on that? I think you kind of mentioned that there are a lot of women who just don't know these things. What has your experience been with women's understanding of what, what's actually going on in their bodies, what they're doing to their bodies, um, and how does that contribute to all of these things? Well, I think it's, it, it, it's a very, that's a very true statement, Mary-Kate. I, I don't think physicians or healthcare providers are providing enough information on what women are actually consuming on a daily basis. And remember, it's not just, you know, one day or two days, it's months and years, and in some women, decades of being exposed to these chemicals. And I think it's just somewhat naive to think that you can consume a synthetic steroid on a daily basis mm -hmm. and have no ill effects from that. And I think the one you know, argument that I hear most of the time, and it comes from the medical community, and, and it comes from the American College of OBGYN, is they make this comparison like, yes, the birth control pill is risky. However, so is pregnancy. That's not a valid argument. Right. You're cherry picking the data, number one, and number two, they're not comparable. One is a natural, normal state. The other is an artificially uh, created environment um, that um, is perpetrated, you know, uh, day after day, week after week, month after month. Right. 
And so um, that women are not being told. I don't think they're being told how the pill works, what the risk of the pill are. Um, they're just being told, take it, it'll make your complexion better and it will make your periods lighter, which may be true. But there are minor and major side effects of the pill. I mean, when you think about it, um, the discontinue rate for the pill approaches 50 to 60% in the first few months. Well, why is that? Well, because if, if I told you, hey, I got this great medicine and I want you to take it every day, but it may cause some nausea, irregular bleeding, weight gain, bloating, breast tenderness, irritability, and it may decrease your libido. I think you might pass. You might say, oh, well, I, yeah. I don't know, I'm <laughs> not sure I'm interested. Sound like a very I, I, that doesn't sound too good to me, you know? Yeah. But then you, you think about, okay, those are just minor side effects. What about the major ones, the ones that can kill you? The blood clot, the high blood pressure, migraines, depression, heart attack, liver tumors. Those are serious. And they're all self-inflicted because you don't need to be on this medication. There's not a medical indication for combined hormonal contraception. Right. Right. It's treating nothing other than symptoms. And its main design is to treat a healthy process that is a woman's fertility as though it were an unhealthy process. Yeah. A woman gets pregnant is not a sign that something went wrong. It's a sign that something worked as it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the biggest question, and maybe the 600-pound gorilla in the room is, we're just making the assumption, and when I say we, the medical community is making the assumption that it's okay for a 13 or 14 or 15-year-old to be sexually active, which I think is crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not mm -hmm. okay. And it's not okay on so many different levels. When you look at these high schoolers who are becoming sexually active, Mary-Kate, and you compare them to their non-sexually active counterparts, the sexually active cohort of students is getting trounced on every metric. So parents, listen up, they're getting trounced on ACT scores. They're getting trounced on wow. self-esteem scores. They have higher depression, okay? They're not doing as well. The reason is, is that that activity is confined to sacramental marriage for a good reason, because it's more than just about the physical aspect. And I don't know how to impress that upon society. Yeah. But we've been told differently. We've been told way differently that no, 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 this is just a recreational activity. Right. And it goes far beyond that, far beyond that. We were talking about a podcast that I listened to uh, Malcolm Gladwell did an episode of Revisionist History on Dr. John Rock 
And it, it's actually funny, it's occurring to me now, the juxtaposition of listening to you, who is a devout Roman Catholic, and you know this conversation about Dr. John Rock, he was a Catholic and was the creator of the birth control pill. And there's, first of all, I think there's so much misinformation about him and about that story. I was at your talk that you gave at St. Al's a couple of months ago, and you talked about the number of women, or I guess there was a few women who died in the first round of tests on the pill, which is so fascinating. And then you talked about the pill that they created for the men and what the men experienced <laughs> and how it was just really undesirable and they ultimately chose to change some things with the pills. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little about what you know about the history of the pill, its creation, some of these other things. I think we hear from a lot of Catholics and this was something that Malcolm Gladwell like pushed and pushed and pushed in his episode was if you're a Catholic and you don't agree with, you know, and you don't agree with the hormonal birth control pill, you're just like totally uh, get with the program because Dr. Rock, Dr. Rock was a devout Catholic. Dr. Rock was a uh, devout Catholic, uh, Johns Hopkins, and he was instrumental, one of many Catholics who were instrumental in developing the pill. And I gotta say, the original pills that they developed um, were more than likely um, acting as contraceptives and not abortifacients because they were so high dose. They were so high dose that the women taking them were so nauseous that the mere idea of intimacy didn't, never even played. So, you know, it wasn't even gonna, gonna happen. But, but it, I, I think that's how a lot of the pills development came. They've, they got some very well-known Catholic physicians on board in the development, Margaret Sanger, the uh, founder of Planned Parenthood was uh, involved with the development of the pill. And you did, you brought up that the first studies were done in Puerto Rico, um, not in the United States, but in a very Catholic country. And in the first studies that were done, um, there were actually four women who died secondary to uh, uh, blood clots in their lungs because of the pill. And you would think that that would be enough to uh, stop the studies right then and there, but it wasn't. And what they decided was that that was uh, uh, unfortunate, but that what they could, they could rectify that by adjusting the dose of the pill um, to make it safer. And they've been adjusting the dose of the pill ever since in order to make it safer. That should be concerning to all of us. Now at the same time, there was an, a duplicate study going on in male medical students who they gave um, the uh, oral uh, synthetic steroids to. And those males, as you mentioned, had an undesirable um, shrinkage, atrophy of, of some uh, important parts of their reproductive uh, system and that was enough to, to stop the study. And so even then it was easy to see four women die um, and 
do they stop the study? Of course not. They just lowered the dose and continued on. But a few medical student men had some um, gonadal atrophy and they stopped the study. And that's why we don't have a male pill today, uh, for good reason. However, you know, so the notion that the, the pill um, is safe, I, I take that uh, uh, into question, Mary Kate, and I, I, I am concerned. Uh, and I think that they were concerned at, at the time as well. Mm -hmm. They were very well uh, aware of how the pill might work. And Dr. Rock and the other uh, physicians who were Catholic were well aware that the pill might act as an abortifacient, might be considered, you know, could cause the baby to be aborted. And so that's why they had the doses so high, because at the doses that they started out with, which were not tolerable, ovulation was not possible. However, the women could not, could not tolerate those high doses, and plus, they were dying. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's what happened. And um, there's a great book, it's out of print, um, called The Bitter Pill, which uh, discusses how, the, how this all came about and how they were, they took the experiment to Puerto Rico because they couldn't do it in the United States. And they took it to a very Catholic country, mm -hmm. which was uh, doubly diabolical. Was it, was the drive, I have a couple of follow-up questions for you, I guess, was the drive for these doctors just a contraceptive option? I mean, what, what was their motivation? Was it a health thing that they thought, that they suspected it would have some of these other, um, you know, s side effects, I guess, or, uh, what do you think about that? I think that the initial drive, the money, you, you, they always say follow the money. So the money initially was coming from the likes of Margaret Sanger, who was very, um, at that time, into eugenics, was very um, um, uh, concerned about what she considered uh, undesirables procreating and, um, and that there was this concern of uh, population control. And I can remember in the 70s, jumping ahead many decades, a picture of the globe and it was full of people and they were falling off because we were going to all die of overpopulation. And so there was this big push to stop people from procreating. And unfortunately, that push is uh, alive and well today. And we see it in a lot of the UN mandates. We see it in um, the uh, Bill Gates Foundation mm -hmm. tying birth control with aid. Um, you want money? Stop having babies. Mm -hmm. 
And um, unfortunately, Bill Gates' wife is Catholic. She is. Yeah. She is. And and I would love to sit down with her and just <laughs> explain to her why that that idea, although may sound good on the the surface, is not working. Let's let's think about the pill. It's been out for 50 years now, and are we better off because of the birth control pill? Are abortions down right. because of the birth control pill? Right. Are sexually transmitted diseases down because of the birth control pill? No, no, no. It's been a disaster for society. But we keep doubling down on it. We keep saying, no, this time it's just about access. If we get more access. Mm -hmm. And now I think as more and more data comes out about combined hormonal contraception and that it's not the best thing and women are beginning to awaken to that, what's the next step? Well, the next step is IUDs, right. inner uterine devices or, you know, um, implants you know, implanon, things like that. And um, and some of those things are always abortifacients. Always, and we're, we're treating, you know, we're, we're treating our patients like they are animals and they're not really truly human beings. And that's what is, um, so frightening to me as an obstetrician gynecologist. I, I often say, you know, we need a little more self-control and a little less birth control. And maybe that's old-fashioned type of thinking, but I've seen enough of my 25 years of private practice to see the carnage of abortion, and I've seen young women and men who are wrecked from starting to engage in adult activities far before their time. Mm -hmm. And um, I will shout from the top as the highest mountains as, as long as I draw breath that we need to rethink this. Yeah. We need to put conjugal activity in its proper Place, and that's within the confines of sacramental marriage. I believe that wholeheartedly. So, you know, you'll have pro-lifers, and I'm sure there'll be some who might listen to this, that will say that, well, we need to separate the birth control issue from the abortion issue. Um, birth control is not the problem. And, there, I mean, there are pro-lifers who just outright just would disagree with this and you know i'm curious what you would say to that person because as far as i'm concerned and i think you as well the two are not unrelated they're exactly you know what you can't have one without the other um and how do we address that with a, a movement that for a very long time has tried to stray from the birth the birth control conversation right when when you separate conjugal activity it's it has two purposes, right? Procreative uh, is, is one, bonding the other. Um, and when you try to separate the two, that's where we start getting into problems. And Catholics contracept, 
just as much as non-Catholics. And many of Catholic clergy um, do not have an issue with uh, contraceptive use. But I think that it's, it's impossible to separate contraception from abortion. And the reason is, is one, the contraceptive can act as an abortion. I don't think a lot of women are aware of that. And yes, life begins at conception, right? An interesting aside is that in 1965 or so, the American College of OBGYN got together and they, the, the, the Committee on Terminology decided to change the definition of pregnancy. Prior to 1965 or so, the definition of pregnancy was when egg and sperm united, conception, fertilization. After 1965, Terminology Committee got together and said, well, no, actually it's, it's more precise to say that pregnancy begins after implantation. Mm. Well, how convenient was that change by the American College for OBGYN because if a baby is flushed out of the womb because the lining is so thin that it can't implant, and the American College of OBGYN says, well, pregnancy's not really established until after implantation, then that's not an abortion, is it, according to them? But that one of the actions of the birth control pill um, is that abortifative uh, mechanism. And it's right there on the package insert. Inhibits nidation, nidation, N-I-D-A-T-I-O-N. Look it up, it's implantation. So they knew full and well. John Rock knew full and well. Now, he was a daily communicant and he, you know, I'm sure felt in his mind a couple things and I, I wasn't around during that time, but I can imagine there was a movement afoot that thought along the lines that the Catholic Church was going to come into the 21st century and change her teaching on contraception. Mm -hmm. And then St. Paul VI in 1968 dropped a bomb on us called Humana Vitae, mm -hmm. which reaffirmed, rightly so, the Catholic teaching on contraception. And um, so there are better alternatives to oral contraception to interuterine devices. Um, my goodness, don't let anyone put a foreign body inside you. Um, and for all your listeners, you know, if someone wants to put you on the birth control pill, don't let them. Come to Downers come, Grove. Yeah, come to Downers <laughs> Grove. We'll, we'll give you an alternative and um, we'll figure out what, what's really um, uh, taking place and going on. Um, but um, yeah, so that's... Well, thank you very much, Doctor. I appreciate it. Appreciate what you do and you're sharing all of that with us. And I'm sure, I hope another day will come that we can have another conversation about all the other, you know, things there are to talk about in regards to this issue. But anything, is there anything you want to add? Any, you know, anything burning on your mind that you need to 
put out there? No, I just, like I said, uh, thanks for having me. And, um, you know, if your listeners uh, want more information, you know, we're in, in Donner's Grove at Donner's Grove OBGYN. I can put your information in the sure uh, in the notes and yeah, uh, and Instagram. Yeah, and Instagram. There we go. <laughs> He's on Instagram. So, all right. Well, that sounds good. Thank you so much, Doctor. You're I welcome. appreciate it.